This morning we continue our series on big faith, talking about what God, how God grows our faith and helps us to take the next steps that we talk about here at Great Oaks that, that God wants us to take. Uh, we've talked about so far this, just kind of a little bit of a, of a review. Uh, the New Testament teaches that individuals connect or reconnect with God not because of their you know, perfect righteousness, not because they do everything right, not because of any, anything they do other than, than trust and faith. Faith and trust is what connects us with God. And that makes sense because if we look all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis, at the beginning of, in the Garden of Eden, our relationship with God was broken through a lack of trust. And that was what broke our relationship all the way back in the Old Testament. And now we're in the New Testament and we talk about how God reconnects us with him and it's through faith and trust as well. So the condition of our faith is hugely important to God. And he wants us to grow in it. it. It equals the relationship. The level of our faith, the level of our trust in God is what our relationship is based upon. And so growing our faith is equivalent of growing our relationship with him. And that's why we always talk about here at Great Oaks, helping people take their next step with God. Our purpose here as a church is to help each one of you, each one of us, to take our next step with God. And that next step is always a step of trust and faith. Always a step of trust and and faith. And so we've talked about so far in this series, we've talked about some things that God uses, some catalysts that God uses to grow our faith. Some of these are, are, they're not necessarily a list we find in scripture, but what they are is are things we've observed over the years that uh, always seem to be true when we hear people's story about how they've come to grow in their faith. Because we said, you know, the faith journey would be great and none of it would be great if we accepted Christ and then our faith journey was marked like this upward climb. But none of us look like that if we were to graph our, our faith journey. It would be more like up and down like this. There's highs and lows in our faith journey along the way. I think all of us would say that. That's true. And so the question is, when we have those highs, those high points in our journey, how do you describe how that happened? What caused it? What catalyst caused us to leap in a sense in our faith? And so uh, some of the things we've talked about so far is uh, practical teaching. Practical teaching is one of the things that, uh, that, w- that we uh, see that has happened to us. Practical teaching is when... We, we hear the word of God taught in a way that not is just about uh, knowledge, but where it helps us to understand not only what it means, but how, how to do it. And we begin to actually apply it to our life. And so practical teaching is a catalyst, uh, whether it comes through a teacher like on stage, or it comes through a small group, or it comes through some teaching. We, you know, nowadays we have access to all kinds of teaching online. We have all kinds of things to access and hear practical teaching through. Another thing that we do as well, another catalyst we hear as well, is providential relationships. And providential relationships are those things we talked about where along the way that people come into our life, step into our life, and when they do, what they do is uh, they seem to be there at the right time. And they're the persons who, who help us to, to move to the next stage of our faith. Or it might be been a, uh, somebody who was, it could have been a parent or a friend, it could be a grandparent, it could be uh, somebody in the neighborhood, it could be somebody who was a a Sunday school teacher when you were a kid. It could be somebody who was a, a scout leader, somebody who did something in your life who was there to help you in growing in your faith. Providential relationships is another thing that God uses to grow our faith. Uh, the one we talked about last week was private disciplines. Private disciplines. And private disciplines are those things where we learn, and, and it helps to grow our faith hugely when we begin to understand how to pray on our own, not just mealtime prayers, not, not just uh, now lay me down to sleep prayers. Uh, it's when we begin to understand how to pray and connect with God in this intimate fashion. Or we begin to study the Bible and read the Bible ourselves and begin to have a devotional time. We call that, uh, and we connect with God in the mornings and we do those, those things as well. Those private disciplines are things where God can grow our faith as well. 
Um, and then today we're going to talk about a fourth one, personal ministry. I'll come back to that in a second. And the fifth one next week, which will end our series with us, is uh, pivotal circumstances. And pivotal circumstances we talk about next week is this. There are things in our life, good things and bad things, that happen in our life that are really catalysts, they're, they're linchpins in regards to us growing our faith. And how we approach those and how God uses those in our life, those good and bad things in our life, uh, really has a huge effect upon our faith and our growth in faith and taking next steps with God. Now today I want to talk about personal ministry. Personal ministry. Now, why is this such an important catalyst? And I believe this is a huge catalyst that God uses. This is just not uh, it's just something like, oh, here's another part of the list. Um, when I hear people tell their faith stories, when they've, they've come to Christ and they're growing in Christ and they tell me about the things that they're growing in Christ in, they usually talk about this, if they've been a Christian for very long. They talk about stepping out of their comfort zones to serve someone or to get involved in some kind of spiritual activity aimed at helping someone else. And they say things like, well, you know, when I started this, I was weighing over my head. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, but, but I felt God urging me to do this. And so what I did is I started doing it. I prayed very hard and I did it. And in the midst of this, uh, I saw God at work and it grew my faith. It exploded my faith because I saw God using the little bit that I gave him and expanded it into kind of a, a huge thing. Like, uh, you know, there's people all the time that come into our church and we say, hey, uh, where would you like to serve? And, and they'll say, I don't know. I'm not qualified to serve anywhere. I've heard that a thousand times. And uh, you are all qualified to serve somewhere. All of you have something to give, okay? We'll talk about that today in just a moment in Scripture. All of you have something to give. But the issue is, is God, you know, people say, like, I can't serve with children because I really don't have a children's degree. Well, I'm sorry, most of the people back there don't have a degree in children's, you know, development or anything like that either. Uh, or, or I don't serve in, in, you know, in middle school or high school, or I can't serve as a small group leader because I just don't know enough about this or that or whatever. And, and the thing is, is that when, when we give what God, God, when God urges us to do something, he's going to give us, the, equip us to do what we need to do. He's going to take what we give and then he's going to do only what he can do, and that is to exploit our faith and to grow our faith and to help us to go along a little bit. Because I believe this morning that there's many of you here, and I believe this is true, there's just some of you here who are feeling the nudge to do something new and unusual, and you're resisting um, because you, you think that you have to have more abilities or you have to have more training or you have to have more, you know, whatever, you know, and... Um, and what you need to do is there's, there's more at stake than you could imagine because God wants to take that and what he wants to do is that urging to serve in some way. It may not be even here in the church. It may be in the community. It may be starting a new ministry. It may be doing something incredible that God only God can, can bring about. But when he starts to do that, there's more at stake than you can imagine. Now, this morning, I want to look at Scripture and what it has to say. And, and as we look at Scripture this morning, one of the most, probably one of the most um, familiar stories that, that's in all of scripture is what we're going to look at this morning uh, a story that's so familiar that even if you didn't grow up in church you might have heard of this story before um it's in it's found in matthew chapter 14 and if you don't if you have a bible you can turn there if you don't you could if you have a bulletin in the bulletin all the scripture is there this morning it take, took up almost the whole the front of the front of the bulletin cover thing you know the sermon notes and you can look at that as well we're going to talk about this uh this story because I believe the story we're going to look at this morning, it, what it does, it captures the tension and the emotion of this issue of God using personal ministry to grow our faith better than anything that I've ever seen. It's one of the most uh, just straightforward stories in all of Scripture. And we know it, uh, the first part of the story is called the feeding of the 5,000. And now, 
Let me give you some, some background on this. We're, not, we're starting in verse 13 of chapter 14 of, of the book of Matthew. And uh, in the first few, cha- first few verses of that chapter, it explains something. And you have to know the context because the very first words kind of refer back to the first part of the chapter. And so let me say, tell you what was going on. Prior, right prior to what we're going to be looking at today, uh, Jesus had just gotten word that Herod, not Herod, the one, he still wasn't around, the guy that was there when he was you know, born, and, and he was the guy that tried to kill all the babies uh, when Jesus was uh, born, but, you know, that killed Jesus, but he didn't. And uh, this is a different Herod. This is a, down the road, another Herod. And uh, Jesus had just gotten word that Herod had made a rash promise to a dancer at a party, basically what had happened. And, uh, he had, and what had happened, uh, because of this rash promise that he had made, um, uh, uh, Jesus' cousin John, John the Baptist, had been beheaded, okay? He lost his head, um, not intentionally by his part, but by this dancer's part. Anyway, so John request, uh, she requested John's head on a platter used to serve meat to guests. I mean, it's a pretty gross story if we look at that. And imagine, okay, this is Jesus' cousin. This is somebody he probably played with and grew up with. We kind of know the connection between, between uh, his mom and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And imagine Jesus' anger and his grief when he discovers what had happened to, to his cousin. And, and, so, and, and, and probably also imagine the, the disciples' bewilderment because, because this is Jesus who had turned water into wine at, at parties. This is Jesus who had healed total strangers. But he does nothing to stop his cousin from being executed by a coward giving in to the whims of his lust. That's basically what happened. And so Herod, the son of, the son of Herod, uh, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, Herod has killed Jesus' friend, the forerunner of Jesus, the, John the Baptist, Baptist, a prophet and a godly man. And so we have that. That's the, that's the preface to this passage. So it begins with verse 13. Let's look at that this morning. This is where we start. Verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, and that's what he heard, just what I told you, he heard what had happened, John had been killed, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. That makes sense, right? I mean, one of the things we often do when we go into grief is we withdraw to a place to kind of like deal with it. You know, we try to find it. So Jesus is deciding, Jesus, the Son of God, he decides he's going to do this. He's going to a solitary place to be alone, to probably think about, uh, to mourn his, the loss of his, of his childhood friend. But the next part of the verse, 13b, hearing of this, the crowds, they heard about he was going to the solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. I mean, Jesus had been preaching, he'd been healing, he'd been doing all these type of things, and the people, it was all about them. You know, nobody thought about Jesus in this scenario. It was all about them. Let's go find Jesus because we want to be healed. We want to hear his teachings. We want to do this. Don't worry about his grief. You know, I don't know if he even thought about that or they really made the connection because in that day they may not have known the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. Then in verse 14, when Jesus landed, he he went uh, by boat to a solitary place. When Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Um, I think this is, you know, Jesus in the midst of his grief, he does not let his grief overwhelm him to such a point that he did not uh, feel compassion for people. That's Jesus, that's the God, that's the way. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. This is our Father. This is, uh, that's what it looks like. A person who's compassion, even though they're grieving as well. And they healed their sick. And then in verse 15, as the evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, many of these people have been here on this, this place. Remember, this is a solitary place. They said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. 
send the crowds away so they could go to the villages and buy something, uh, buy themselves some food. Now, I don't know. We, we have to con- have some conjecture at this point about what was going on here. Were the disciples concerned about the people not having food? Or were the disciples simply going like, man, we want some food. Let's get these people out of here. We really don't know. We really don't know. But they were in a place far away. They didn't have any fast food restaurants around, you know, nothing going on. And so he's going like, send them away. There's this crowd. And we hear, and we, and we look in there, and it says, in, in a moment, it says there was like, there was thousands of people here. Thousands of people. And, and so uh, probably the disciples were hungry, had no food. Let's just say that. Okay. Verse 16. Jesus replied, <laughs> they do not need to go away. And at this point, the disciples are going, what are you talking about, Jesus? I mean, these people didn't bring their lunches with them. They don't have anything here, and they're hungry. They've been here all day. You've been healing people. You've been teaching. You've been doing all these things, and they're still here. But he says, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And he turns to his disciples and says, you guys give them something to eat. You know, I'm sure at this point, the disciples, if you'd have been there, and you'd have been there in this place, would you have been confused? I'd have been confused. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I mean, I didn't bring enough food for thousands of people. I didn't bring enough food for me. I don't know what they had, but obviously they don't have much because they start looking through the crowd and they find, they find this one little boy with some loaves and fishes. We, we read the story, and it's in a couple different places in Scripture. And the disciples asked Jesus to do something to send the crowd away, but Jesus asked the disciples to do something. Now, this is the tension that we often have in our Christian walk with God. This is where faith grows and where faith can grow in our lives because we have this tension as a Christian. God has gifted all of us. The Bible tells us God has gifted all of us for ministry. Do you know that? That every person in this room who has called himself a believer of Jesus Christ, God has given you some kind of a gift and and you're to use it for what? For the building up of the body of Christ, for serving other people. All of us, the Bible's clear. This is not a gray teach. This is not gray. This is black and white. God has gifted. Every, everybody here is not only called, called to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Every person here is called to serve. Not just people who are paid. Now, I've, I've used this term one time, and somebody took it the wrong way, so it just prefaces. You know, I'm paid to be good. All of you guys are good for nothing. You know, really. You know, it's kind of the deal. You know, you understand that in the context, right? You know? You're called to be good, okay? <laughs> and you don't have to be paid to do it, you know? And so the thing is, the thing is, is that all of us are called, and so we have this tension. But from time to time, we'll be challenged to step out of our comfort zone into ministry. Many of the things that God wants us to do is not things we do not feel like we have the ability to do right now because we don't have enough training, we don't have enough experience, whatever, you will know in your heart that this is not just guilt or the pastor's plea, but a burden from God, uh, and you will hesitate because you will sometimes think, well, you know, God is calling, you'll see something, you're going like, that is something that somebody needs to take care of. I'm going to pray about that, you know? And then God will begin to push you even more and more and more in that area, and you're going like, you know, and you'll feel like I need to do something, but you're going like, no, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just called to pray about that. I'm not going to really do anything about it. I'm just going to pray about that. And, and God's going to have this tension in your life. I mean, there, there might be some women in your neighborhood that you, you know that you could connect with and invite over and begin to build a relationship with, but you're going like, yeah, you know, it could get messy. Because you get a bunch of women together, it can get messy. No, I'm not going there. You know, it can get messy, Right? You know, or, or every time you hear us talk about middle school or high school or children's ministry, 
Some of your, your hearts are tugged because you're going like, you know, I wish there had been, so, I'm so glad there's somebody over there that's doing that, you know? But I mean, we have, we have so many kids, we have so many students, so many, so many middle school, high school children here that, that need people to connect with them. And you're going like, me, no, maybe I, we need more people. And, and we never have enough, by the way, okay? We've never had enough, vol- we've never had to turn volunteers away, by the way, okay? Not once that I know of, okay? Uh, we've always had enough, but never enough to feel like we had an abundance, okay? That's kind of the deal. And so the thing is, so many people say, well, I'm busy or, or, or whatever. I'm not equipped. And Jesus says to you, just give, them, just give me what you have. Give me what you have. Some of you, let me just tell, say this straight up. Some of you have felt a tug by God to move out of the marketplace and to go into ministry in some way. Maybe not here necessarily, but somewhere. I mean, we're talking about planting churches. Guess what? If we plant churches, some people will have to move from here to plant the churches somewhere else. But you're going like, well, I've got a mortgage and kids to raise, and God probably doesn't have a retirement plan. And um, I mean, ultimately he does, but uh, not what we usually think of, you know. It's kind of that deal. And so the thing is, is we have this tension in our life that God calls us to things and he, and he puts in our heart things that he wants us to do and he has these things that motivates us to look at people and say, that needs to, we need to do something about that. But we have this other tension saying, I'm not equipped, I'm not able, I don't have the time, whatever the tension is. But this is what, this is, the story goes along a little bit further and it says in verse 17. So after, the, after Jesus tells them, hey, you guys do something about it, he, sa- he says in verse 17, and the, 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 the disciples say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. And you know, they probably thought at that point, Jesus is going to say, well, we can't do anything with five loaves of bread and two fish. I mean, how are you going to feed thousands of people with that? You know, that is not logical, right? That is just not logical. Well, what does Jesus say? Bring them to me. Bring them here to me, he says. And that's the last thing they wanted to hear probably, because they're going like, okay, what's Jesus going to do now? What's Jesus going to do now? They probably said, I'm afraid he was going to say that. Bring him here to me. You know what Jesus is saying? Whenever he, he says something to you about this is, or he's urging you to do something and you, you see a need, you know what he's saying to you? He's saying, bring whatever you have. All, if all it is, is five loaves and two fishes. You know, if it doesn't look like it's enough, God says, bring them to me, and then I will use them in some miraculous way. Bring them to me, he says. And then in verse 19. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Jesus did that. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. Let's just imagine a scenario here for a moment. Okay, let's paint a picture here for a moment. You guys are Jesus. I know, imagine that. That's really hard to imagine, right? You guys are Jesus. Okay, I'm the disciples. I'm, I'm, I'm multiple disciples. We're standing here. Behind me is the crowd, okay? Behind me is the crowd. You've just taken these, these five loaves and two fishes, you've broken them, you've blessed them, and you hand them to the disciples. And they're going like, okay, what are we supposed to do with this? Are they still back there? You know, are those, is the crowd still, have they gone home? You know, what's going on here? I mean, what am I supposed to do with this little bit of stuff? What am I supposed to do with this little bit of stuff? I'm, I don't have a, there's not a plan here. I mean, I need to know five steps down the road, you know, not just this. And so that's not what the disciples do, though. What do the disciples do? 
the next rest of the verse. Then he gave them to the disciples the bread, the bread and the fish. Still, at this point, remember, it was still just five loaves and two fishes. That's all it was at this point in the story. And the disciples gave them to the people. Wonder what was going through the minds of the disciples as they start to hand out this little tiny bit of food. They're going like, Jesus, man, this is not going to work. This is not going to work. You've got to make something happen here because people are going to get angry because the only people who are going to have this too is those five people in the front row and all the rest of you guys, you don't get anything, you know? And that's going to make you all, all mad and then we're going to have a riot here. All these things are going to go on. But you know what this says here to me? The story, the part of this here where God calls us to do things, they stand there wondering what to do. They had no idea what hung in the balance. But you know what they do to disciples learning this since they do what they know what to do. All they knew what to do was to do what Jesus told them to do, which is what? Hand out the bread and the fish. But that wasn't all the story. Then what happened? Then Jesus did what only he can do. He's the one that multiplied it, not the disciples. He took that little bit that they were willing to do to take the first step of faith, of trust. And they were able to do something, God was able to do something incredible with it. So here's the key. Here's the key to this passage. Here's the, 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 the hinge point. Here's the thing that I hope it'll be in your mind when you leave here today. Here's the key. You do what you can do and trust God to do what only he can do. Let me repeat that. You do what you, do what you can do and, trust to do and trust God to do only what he can do. Because if you don't step out and do what you can do, if it may even seem to be a little bit, you'll never know. You'll never know what he was willing to do through you. Because the rest of the story, verse 20 and 21, is this. Really cool story. It says all these thousands of people, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Wonder what the conversation that was going on after this. Can you imagine? They're going like, how does those five loaves and those fish, those two little fish, how did they become this, feed this whole crowd? And we not only have that, we have leftovers. I hate leftovers. No, and that's not what they said. Probably, you know, you know, they were just joyous at this point. And then it says, and then it tells us how the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, and that day they only counted men. I know women, it's not fair. Or children, it's not fair. But that's just the way it was. Okay, so there was 5,000, 10,000, 15, 20. We don't know. But there was a huge crowd here. Do you think they ever forgot that day? Do you think they ever forgot that day? Do you think they ever forgot that lesson? Do you think that their faith was expanded? by them doing what only they could do and then God doing only what he could do. I think it was a huge lesson that went on. But then we have another part of the story that we never even read because we think that's the end of that story. But really, it's tied together the rest of this chapter. Let me do that real quickly this morning. Verse 22, because it ties it in, it says, immediately. How soon afterward was this? Immediately, thank you, okay, I don't, I'm not asking, this is not Greek deep or anything like that, this is just immediately, it says, right after this happened, right after they fed, they collected the baskets, he dismissed the crowd, I wonder too about dismissing the crowd, I mean, how do you dismiss a crowd of thousands right after you fed them with loaves and fishes and they've been healed and all this kind of stuff, you're dismissed, go home, 
have a great afternoon, you know. They probably didn't want to leave, so I don't know how Jesus dismissed them, but, you know, he did something miraculous there even to get them, get them to leave. But anyway, it says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Verse 23, after he had dismissed them, he went on a mountainside by himself to pray. Remember what, where this whole story started? John the Baptist had been killed. Jesus was going on a mountain to, solve, to, to, to pray. He got interrupted. He feeds 5,000. He does all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus actually gets to go and do what he was intended to do to start off with. He goes onto a mountainside. He goes up onto a mountainside to pray a considerable distance from them. Um, he went there. And when evening came, he was there alone, it says. And so, and he says, so he sends his disciples. He dismissed them. And he, he says the disciples were somewhere else. In verse 24, the, when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, which the disciples were in, was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Um, Immediately what Jesus does is he gets, puts them into another task. He puts them on a boat to do another impossible thing, hoping they will remember the lesson that they just learned. And so they go out into the, and these are fishermen. These are fishermen, guys that are used to being out in a boat. They're hardy guys who knew how to do this kind of thing. And they're around the boat and the wind's pushing them. It says the wind was against them, pushing against them. And the guys are out there and they're rowing, trying to get back to shore to get Jesus. And he's, he's far off there on, out in the land. And, and, you know, and it's probably... You know, they're, they're rowing against the wind. They can't make any headwind. It's probably kind of like a stationary rowing machine. You know, going at it, you know, going at it, nothing's happening. And then the bad thing is they didn't have a TV to watch while they were rowing, you know, like we do when we work out. But the, the reality was that was what was going on. And then verse 25, shortly before dawn, okay, still dark, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now that's pretty cool. You know, I think it's, if all the things in history in, in the Bible that I'd like to see is I'd like to see Jesus walking on water. I think that would be an incredible thing to see. But this is what happened, okay? Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, remember, before you get too hard, about the, hard on the disciples, it's still dark outside, the wind and the waves, and it's, it's probably nasty out there, so you can't really see real well. It says this, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. Now, let me just do a little sidelight right here a minute. One of the things that I think that gives the Bible credibility to me is that the guys who wrote this made themselves look really, really bad. Matthew is the guy who wrote this. He is one of the disciples. Okay? If this was all made up, a made-up story, you know, you know uh, and in the church tradition, there's St. Matthew, and there's St. There's Mark, and St. James, and there's St. John, and there's a building named after Peter, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And these guys, they're definitely, if we looked at them, we would call them the superheroes of the faith. But when we look in their lives, the way they describe them, because Matthew wrote this, Matthew was there, he's an eyewitness of all this, they never look good. They never look good. I mean, and, and it's one of the reasons they, that gives me credibility, the Bible credibility, because the guy didn't write this and going like, well, hey, you know, uh, we saw Jesus and we're going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And, you know, we're rowing like crazy because we're defending the faith. You know, that's how I'd have written it, wouldn't you? You know, if you'd have written yourself into the story, you know, that's what you do, right? If it was a made-up story. But no, no, it says that they were all cowards. You know, we get to heaven and, and we all think of those guys as saints. And, you know, Matthew goes, don't call me a saint. I wasn't a saint. I was a coward. We we're all cowards. We saw Jesus coming on the water. We weren't sure who he was. And what do we do? We freak out. We think it's a ghost. 
We've never seen a ghost, but we thought it was one of those. It must look like that. We don't see people walking on water too often. We're not really sure what's going on. And then verse 27, but Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And hopefully they recognize his voice. Remember once again, what is it? it's the wind and the waves and it's still dark and, and all that stuff's going on. So it's still kind of hard to figure out what's going on. But Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. Hey guys, it's me. And then Peter, of all the people, Mr. Impulsive Peter, of all the people, gets it. He gets it because he says something here that lets you know that he understood what had happened with the loaves and the fishes. Because he says this in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, and I hope it's you, Lord, you know, because I'm getting ready to ask you to do something that if if it's not you, I'm in trouble. He said, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. You know, Peter, if you don't know Scripture, even if you don't know Scripture, Peter was the most impulsive and the most strong-headed of all the disciples. He was always always the guy to to do something first, then think later, almost always. I mean, he was the guy, remember, that whacked off the ear of the guy in the garden, you know, and Jesus rebukes him and said, I don't do that, you know, and he heals the ear. You just see Peter, foot-and-mouth Peter, constantly doing stuff like that. But not in this case, because Peter got it. You know, if it had been normal Peter, Peter would have just jumped out and started running toward Jesus, not said anything. But he says, Jesus, he said, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. See, Peter understands that Jesus, back in the story right before this, in the feeding of the 5,000, they, they came to Jesus and said, here, we got this. And Jesus says, okay, let me tell you what to do with it. You do this with it, then I'll bless it. And see, he understood it. Whatever Jesus tells me to do, if he tells me to do it, I can do it. Not because of me, but because of him. And so he says that. And so in verse 29, Jesus says what? Come! Oh, man. You know, that's scary enough. I mean, Peter just said, hey, Lord, if you want me to come, you tell me to come, and I'll come. And Jesus says, come. You know, and and that would be great. We're going like, okay, that's enough. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to hang here in the boat, you know, do nothing else, because Jesus has talked to me. But he says, Peter got out of the boat, got down out of the boat, and he walked on the water and came toward Jesus. And he doesn't. He doesn't. Was it because Peter was such a person of great? No. Peter just listened to what Jesus had to say. He said, Jesus, you told me to trust you. And so if you tell me to do it, I can do it. But not if you, unless you tell me to do it. I can have some wild hair idea. But unless it's from you, God, you're not going to bless it. You're not going to direct it. Now, folks, that's the Christian experience to a great degree. I dare you to start praying the Peter prayer. That prayer is this, Lord, please, please invite me out of my comfort zone. Please invite me out of my comfort zone. God, I want, to use, want you to use me in the lives of other people, but I don't want to come up with an idea. I want, to, I want the assurance that you are inviting me out of my comfort zone. And then, Jesus, God, I'm going to do what I know how to do, and I can't wait to see what you will do next. That's the Peter prayer. I don't know if he said all that, but... That flew through his head quickly. Peter, but then Peter, what does Peter do? Peter does, you know, gets started. He starts walking on water. Jesus tells him to come. He starts walking on the water. But what is, he does what we do so often. 
When we get involved in something and we're semi-successful at it and we, we, we remember that Jesus is the one who did it to start with and we get our eyes off of Jesus and then we start looking around and we're going like, oh, look at me. And Peter looks around and he sees the winds and the waves and he gets so terrified. He's no longer looking at Jesus. He gets terrified. And he begins to sink. He begins to sink. It says in verse 30, but when when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. It cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Then it says this in verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him and said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, I, I just have to, how do I interpret this as this? He wasn't belittling Peter. Because if anybody needed patting on the back, it was Peter. Because he, of all the disciples, who was the one that took the step of faith? Peter. Because this is all about faith. This isn't about, hey, I've got another great idea for a miracle. This is all about, there, there's an agenda. I'm trying to teach you guys to trust me to do this. You begin looking at your ability, and when you looked at your ability, then you forgot to trust me. That's what happened here in Peter's story. But I don't think Jesus was chastising Peter. I mean, there were 11 other guys in the boat, and they, and they are the guys to chastise. At least Peter said, come on, uh, call me out, God. Uh, I, maybe, maybe, and maybe this is apparent in me. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking when Jesus reached out his hand and takes the hand of Peter and, and says, hey, Peter says, you almost had it. Remember when you're with a little child and they start taking little steps and they're kind of quivering around, you know, and they walk and they fall down. What do you do? You're going like, you dumb child. Can't you walk better? That's not what you do, do you? No. No. I mean, if you do, you need to be taken and beaten yourself, you know. But the reality is, is what you do is you say, you encourage them. You're just going like, you almost did it. You almost did it. And I think that's what Jesus was doing here with Peter. He was going, Peter, you, you got it for about a minute. <laughs> And then you took your eyes off of me, and then you went the other way. And then in verse 32 and 33, it wraps up, and it says this. And when they climbed into the boat, Peter and Jesus, hand in hand, climbs into the boat, the wind died down. As another example of the power of God. And then in verse 33, I love the way it ends. This story, this is after two, this is after the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water, okay? Verse 33, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I mean, for you know, we suspected it before, but now we understand who you are. I mean, the whole bread and fish thing, I'm telling you, we're in, Jesus, we're in. The walking on the water sealed it for us. Now, let me end by saying this. Everybody stands where Peter stood at one point. You, you're in the boat. Jesus is telling us, Jesus says, come I'm urging you to do something, and he wants us to step out of the boat and to do something for him, and, and you feel like you're insignificant, and, and you feel like you can't do it, and, and Jesus says, just do what you can do, and then I'll do only what I only can do. I mean, I remember, and I wasn't here when this happened, but I've heard stories, you know, this church is 16, a little over 16 years old, and about 17, 18 years ago, there were people in this community who said, said this, they go, you know, we need to start a new church in this community. We don't know what it's going to look like. 
We don't know. We just want to start a church that's going to reach people for Jesus Christ. And so, so we're just not going to go to another church. We're going to do something ourselves. We're going to start a new church. And, you know, they were standing there and they could have said, you know, let's just pray about it. Let's just pray about it. You know, well, we're not going to do anything about it. Let's just pray about it. And they probably prayed about it for a while. But finally, they had to step out of the boat. And it was a risky step because, let me tell you, the reality is, is not all church plants survive. About 50% of church plants in America that start do not survive if they're not started correctly. That's the statistics, okay? Just to let you know right up front. There is better ways of doing it, though, where there's a much better percentage of, star- of starts surviving. But, you know, there's no, there's no guarantee. So when they did that and the church started, they didn't know what was going to happen. And they did what they could do. Hey, we're going we're gonna to get a building. We're going to have a worship service. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We don't even know how it's going to look because when I came about four years later, they're going like, okay, we, we want to reach the community for Christ. Bill, tell us how to do that. <laughs> and I loved it. Uh, this is a great group of people. I mean, high energy, wanted to do stuff for Christ, you know, whatever. They'd stepped out of the boat. They were taking each day a step by faith in what they were doing. Aren't you glad they did? Aren't you glad they did? Because they did what they could do, and they let God do only what God can do. Multiply and reach people and grow a community of believers. And you know what hangs in the balance of the decisions that we, when we choose to do what God tells us to do? There's two things that hangs in the balance. One that hangs in the balance is the maturity of your faith. The maturity of your faith. If you don't take the step of stepping out and doing what God calls you to do, you will never know what God can do. And your faith will grow. But also, when God calls you to serve in ministry with someone else, the maturity of someone else's faith as well is affected. I mean, aren't you glad somebody took a chance and ignored their fear and insecurity in regards to to talk to you about who Jesus Christ was? You wouldn't be here right now if that wasn't true. Somebody stepped out. It is scary sometimes to talk to people about Jesus. I don't know why. It should be the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> but sometimes we're scared about that, right? We're afraid. Aren't you glad somebody stepped out in faith to do that? Aren't you glad, parents? Aren't you glad that somebody took a chance to minister to your children, even though they go over there and they're going like, I don't know about what kids. You know, there's like 50 kids over there. I don't know what to do. Or, or middle schoolers, you know, I mean, very rarely do we ever get anybody going like, hey, I want to serve in middle schoolers, bring on the middle school boys, I want 25 of them, give them to me. If, if anybody says that, we don't accept them, <laughs> because they're nuts, right? You know, the thing is, is that, you know, we want people to come in going like, you know, I'll do what I can do, and then I'll let God do what only he can do. And that'll make the difference. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's somebody, if you're in a small group, that went, you know, I don't feel equipped to lead a small group. I mean, I don't have a Bible degree, and I really don't have a degree in psychology. If I, or I don't know, you know, somebody's going to ask a question I don't know how to answer. Aren't you glad they, you know, we got a lot of, ton of just dynamic small groups in this church. As your pastor, I covet for you the experience of seeing God work through your weaknesses and your fears in the lives of other people. Because I think nothing else will cause your faith to soar more 
that if you'll just simply say to God these things, would you be willing to do what you can do and trust God to do only what he can do? You want your faith to grow? Be willing to try that and see what God can do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.